We are uh, studying the book of Acts. And as one of the leaders of this church, uh, I find this passage that we are looking at, and we looked at last week and we're going to continue to look at this week, Acts 2, 42 to 47, incredibly challenging. To me, it describes a church, the first church, against which all churches should be measured. Acts 2, 42 to 47 presents the gold standard, if you will, the best practice of the church. And as someone who dearly longs to be a part of a church that meets what God had envisioned for his church, I find what's presented by Luke in this section of Acts incredibly helpful but challenging once again Pentecost is over and that's where Luke started his history of the church and now we read again Acts 2 42 to 47 they devoted themselves to the Apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Last week, we took a look at three striking and defining characteristics of that church. The first is this. They had a passion for God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. They were curious about Jesus. They wanted to know more about him. They understood the importance of the fellowship of the believers in, in their faith walk. They understood the importance of prayer, and, they, and they, they understood how important it was to keep Christ central, and the fact that Christ gave us this ritual to remind us of his centrality. So the second characteristic that we talked about last week was that church's passion for the body of Christ. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They were sacrificially committed to the welfare of each believer. That commitment was physical for the physical needs of each other. It was spiritual. It was emotional. In a later description that we read in Luke, Luke writes these words, They were one. They were one in heart and mind. And then the third characteristic we, we looked at last week was their passion for their community. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Not just the people in the church, 
but in their community, they enjoyed favor. People looked on them with respect. People uh, considered them people of integrity, and uh, they were impressed by them. And so the church must have been fully integrated in their community because they were deeply appreciated by the people of Jerusalem. And so we have this picture that I presented last week of this first church being all in, completely, fully invested in the things of God and His purposes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this first church was also contagious. These words, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, indicate to me that there's a relationship between the church being the church that Christ has envisioned and the salvation of lost souls. When we are the church, people are attracted to the church and people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So I have to ask the question, are we missing something? For instance, we think of all these people coming to know Jesus on a daily basis. I mean, did they sign up to some fancy evangelical strategy? Were they bringing in some hotshot speaker that everybody would be enthralled with? Was there some kind of formula that they were using that was really winning? A winning formula? I don't think so. <laughs> Peter was the disciple that Jesus Christ chose to build his church on. He said, Peter... You are the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. He should know a thing about building churches. He should know a thing about the kingdom of God expanding and growing exponentially. Look at what Peter says about how we are to share our faith. We read in 1 Peter 3 these words. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Where's the formula? Where's the strategy? Seems kind of underwhelming, doesn't it? But consider the impact. People came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior on a daily basis. As the church did what Peter said here. They revered Christ. He was everything to them. They were always prepared. They knew how to share their faith. They were prepared because people were asking them about their faith. 
People were so impressed. People were so drawn that they were asking them. And when they shared, they did it with gentleness and respect. They weren't manipulative. They weren't trying to um, coerce or force. They just said, man, I love Jesus. <laughs> Jesus has been so good to me. He's done this for me. I love him. And people were added daily to the church. You know, this is the question that comes to my mind when I read what Peter says there in 1 Peter 3. This is the question. What possesses someone to ask another such an intimate, vulnerable, and revealing question? I mean, a superficial relationship doesn't result in somebody asking that question. For me to say to somebody else, what is about you, man, that makes you so unique and really so attractive and so impressive? What is it about you? That's not an easy question to ask because we all want everybody to think that we got it all together. Why would I ask somebody else about something that they're doing when I've got it all together? At least we want people to be impressed. We want people to think that we've got it going on. And the fact of the matter is, we don't. These people had it going on. They, they, were, they were attractive. People were drawn to them. So what is the answer to my question? What possesses someone to ask such an intimate, vulnerable, and revealing question? Why would somebody ask that of somebody? Why would somebody say, what's at the source of the hope that you have? Well, I think integrity is one of the things. In other words, that person has to have confidence that the, the person they're asking isn't fraud, isn't a fraud, isn't fraudulent isn't a phony, isn't a hypocrite, isn't one thing in this situation and another in a different. has to be a person of integrity. And then the second thing is there has to be a trusting relationship between the two. Because that is not an easy question to ask. I have to read pretty close with somebody to ask them something like that. And so I think integrity and trust were important things. So I went back to that passage that we're reading and studying Acts 2, 42 to 47. I went over it and, and I made a list of adjectives that describes the members of the first church. And this is what I came up with. They were convinced. They were humble. Did you know that the, the entry requirement to be a part of this group was you admitted you were a sinful person who was lost and needed a savior? <laughs> Here's my resume. Oh, I don't want to read that. <laughs> you had to be lost. You had to be a sinner. You had to be 
humble enough to admit that you needed Christ. They were humble. They were so grateful for what they had received. They were dedicated. It says, the first words in that uh, passage that we're reading, it says they devoted themselves. They were devoted. They were passionate. They, they, they were inspired. They were inspired by the word. They were in the teaching of the, the apostles. They were inspired by what the apostles were doing. They were curious. They wanted to know more. They were hospitable. They were confident that they had found the truth. They were friendly and, and they, they were joyful. <laughs> they were joyful. They were charitable. They were giving. They were generous. They were united. They were open. And they were loving. Now that's the list I came up with. You could probably come up with a ton more. Do you know what? Look at that list. Those are people I want to hang out with. <laughs> Those are good people. Those are people I'm impressed with. Those are people that inspire me. That, means, that say, I want to be like that. That's what was going on in the first church. These were the people. The more I thought about it, I realized that over all of those wonderful attributes was one thing, and that was that they were obedient. Jesus, when he was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I mean, I have to be one. Love God. He is everything. And then number two, he said, this is the first of the greatest, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I love myself a lot. I don't want to die. I, mean, I don't think I'm arrogant, but I don't want to die. <laughs> I, I, I take care of myself. I eat and I, and I take medication when I'm sick and, and I take care of myself. I love myself. I have to love my neighbor to that degree. So above all else, they were obedient. And so I ask the question again. Are we missing something? Are we being obedient to this great commandment? That great commandment to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Are we passionate like they were? Are we people of integrity that people trust and have confidence in? Are we attractive to this community? Do people want to be around us? Do they see in us something that is desirable? Do we have their trust? Acts 5, 1 to 11. I'm jumping ahead in our study. But it is a startling, sobering account that I believe sheds some light on this question. Are we missing something? You see, we've seen that in the circ 
the special circumstances of this first church, that people actually sold properties uh, and put all the proceeds of, of the profits, well, all of the money, not just the profits, all of the money into a pot, and it was for the taking care of people that didn't have, people that had needs. And this is an account that Luke writes about one of those transactions, X5, 1 to 11. Now, a man named Ananias, Ananias took with his wife, um, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and, and put it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3 4 says this. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but you have lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all those who heard of what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she replied, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? <coughs> Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Why would God come down so hard on this couple? I mean, after all, who amongst us has sold a piece of property and given all of the money to the church so that it could go into the deacon's fund and be used with people for people who are in need? But we know what God is doing here, right? These are critical days when God is establishing his gold standard of the church. He is sending a message loud and clear. An example was made of this couple. Now you can get into was this you can get into the justice of God and judgment. But I would say to you that anybody can be judged at any time and God is just in that judgment. Their time came at a critical time. So, God is establishing an important principle here. And that was no compromise. You're fooling yourself. If you think you can compromise, you're fooling yourself if you think that you can act like you're all in, 
but have other gods in your tent. You're fooling yourself. I don't think that was why they died, to be honest. The reason they died <laughs> was that they lied. They lied about it. They wanted people to think that they were all in. And actually, I mean, goodness me, they gave a ton of money to the needy. <laughs> but they weren't all in. They were sort of in. There is no sort of in with God. I don't know that we understand that fully. There is no sort of in with God. There is no partially all in. It's an oxymoron. It's like being part pregnant. You can't be part pregnant. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. But you can't be partially all in with God. You are or you're not. Jesus said these ones. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate. That's a strong word. Hate. Jesus shouldn't be using words like that. It's not a nice word. We don't allow that word in our house. Hate. And there's Jesus using that word hate. Hate. Either you hate the one and love the other. Or you will be devoted to the one and despise. There's another one of those words. I don't like that word. Despise. Despise the other. Those are strong words, folks. Hate and despise? What are we supposed to love? We're supposed to love God with our whole heart. What are we supposed to despise? Sin. Sin. We're supposed to decide, despise it. We're supposed to hate it. We're supposed to run from it. We're supposed to turn our back on it. It is not to be in our lives. We are not perfect. Don't get me wrong. We're not perfect. But at the same time, we can't be hypocrites like Ananias and Sapphira, who knowingly were duplicit, knowingly schemed, knowingly decided that we are going to pretend to be all in, but in fact, we're taking care of ourselves. I wonder if we're getting to the answer to the question, are we missing something? The prophet Isaiah was used of God to rebuke Israel. He said these words, these people come to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. You see, the dynamic nature of that first church, its integrity, its experiential, exponential, and exponential growth, why it was so attractive to the lost, I believe, has something to do with this principle, uncompromised authenticity. No compromise. We will mess up. You will sin and I sin all the time. But I gotta tell you something. I don't scheme at it. I don't live with it. I don't make, I don't get comfortable. I don't cozy up to that duplicity. I feel really bad when I sin. I don't say, well, that's just me. I'm a gossip. 
People know I am, so they best watch what they tell me. <laughs> that is cozying up to sin. That's being duplicit. That's what killed Ananias and Sapphira. So the question is, if we hope to be a church that is faithful to God's vision, <coughs> this has to be our commitment. Uncompromised authenticity. Fully in love with God, fully in love with everyone. <laughs> is it your commitment and is it my commitment? It's a huge commitment. Is it our church's commitment? You know, if it isn't, the good news of the gospel is always this. It can be. <laughs> I love that about Jesus. Every revival. Now, the spiritual advisors and I talked about the word revival. Because people get all these weird conjured things in their heads about what that means. All I'm talking about is people coming back to their first love of Jesus Christ and people being born again for the very first time. Every revival starts with one thing. Whether it is Jonah going to Nineveh, whether it is John the Baptist on the Jordan River, or whether it is Peter preaching to Jerusalem, it always starts with one thing. Repentance. If we want to be the church in which people are added to their numbers daily, in which people are saying, what is it about you folks? I want to be a part of that. That's attractive to me. If we want to be what God has envisioned, if we want to fulfill the, the, the great commission that we've been given to be disciples in all the world, to grow the kingdom of God, if, if we want that, it starts with repentance. David, who was a saint compared to me, said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's an interesting prayer. It was an invitation for God to search him. You see, the sin that disarms our mission and softens our resolve and weakens our witness and compromises our commitment, that sin is so often only laid bare by the x-ray eyes of God. <laughs> and so... David says to God, search me and know my heart. And, and the reason he says that is, I have probably grown very comfortable with my sin. I have probably justified it and actually don't even see sin as sin anymore. And so God, you need to search my inner being and tell me what is sin. Because I have become callous to it. Search me, God, and know. God also gives a promise about repentance. 
in 2 Chronicles 7. We read it last week. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You know, your first love may have been replaced by another. Could be a person, could be money, could be possessions. You may be unwilling to forgive people. You may be harboring prejudices or hate. You may want to be in control of your life. You may want to allow God into your life under your terms. You might want to fit the God of the universe, the supreme being, the God Almighty. You might want to fit him into your life. You may have a habit that you refuse to surrender. You may need to repent. We may need to repent. We need to ask God to search us. We have to see if we're missing anything. And if we're willing, we have to be brave enough to turn away from that sin. To repent means I'm going this direction. And when I repent, I don't move this direction. I don't move this far. I don't move that far. If I do, I'm part pregnant. <laughs> 183s. That's repentance. So, I believe that maybe God is calling us to repentance. And we're going to close this service in an unusual way, a way that, you know, we haven't, we don't usually do this sort of thing, and, 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 that's, and that's fine. And, and honestly, if there's people that have, you got to leave, you can leave, don't, nobody's going to be judging you if you have to leave or anything. But I seriously want us to just spend some time in the quiet. And if, if God has been speaking to you this morning about repentance, I want you to take this moment in the quiet of this moment. I want you to ask God to search your heart and show you things that are sin, that you know. You, you know when he presents them to you, you'll know they're sin. And if you're brave enough, and if you're really truly into it, quite frankly, ask him to forgive you. So let's just spend a few minutes in prayer. Once again, if you have to go, it's okay. But let's just, let's just have some time to pray. And then in a few minutes, I'm just going to close it up. So let's ask God to search us.
want you to know that God is faithful and he, he will search your heart if you ask him to. And he is faithful to forgive you. His proof is that he went to the cross and died on, on it for you. I don't, I don't know how else you prove something in a more convincing fashion than to die for somebody so that they understand fully and completely that they're forgiven. And so know without a shadow of a doubt that as you confess your sin to him that he forgives you. There's no doubt. He wants to cover you with his wings. He wants you to be still and know that he is your God. He wants to hold you tight under his blood that he has spread on the doorpost of your life. He is faithful and he will forgive you. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you now. Many of us, I know, at least within this church, want to be the church that is contagious. And not because it's something that we want for ourselves, not because uh, we're, we're, we're bored with what we're doing or anything like that. Lord, we simply want to be obedient to you and to be the church that you've envisioned. And we want to be contagious because we know that people in a church that is right with you and is, 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 has placed you in your rightful place and who's loving you and loving others full out completely with integrity will have an impact. And so Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd be at work. I know that there's probably been some prayers that really would just to start today. Lord, keep working in our hearts. Keep searching us. Holy Spirit, be at work in us, revealing to us what you want to reveal, exposing what needs to be exposed. And I thank you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.